political races in Missouri and Kansas head to the wire with a week to go. It's a bonus edition. I'm Dave Helling of the Kansas City Star's editorial board. Welcome. You are on Deep Background. Well, joining us now on this special pre-election edition of Deep Background is our good friend Jason Hancock in from Columbia, Central Missouri, right, Jason? Mid-Missouri. Great, great to, <laughs> Mid-Missouri. Great to have you here. And Leah Becerra, the co-host of Deep Background, also with us. Well, we want to talk about all things Missouri. Let's end with the Senate race. Let's start with uh, the ballot issues. It's the longest ballot in recent memory, Jason. And I was giving a speech today to a group, and I said, let me try this by memory, you know, without a cheat sheet. And so I'll do that here. And if I'm wrong, let me know. The first thing on the ballot amendment one is Mm -hmm. clean Missouri and what's known as clean Missouri. Tell us kind of what it would do and then give us some sense of where you think that campaign has been this year. So it's sort of a wide ranging um, constitutional amendment that would impact the legislature. The first and most prominent is it would redo how districts are drawn. So instead of a commission that was appointed by the political parties and the governor. It turns it over to a nonpartisan demographer to draw these districts with a competitiveness in mind. Argument being that we have a lot of districts that are lopsided one way or the other, a lot more Republican lopsided than Democrat. And so this would try to put some competitiveness in the districts. Right. And the demographer would be appointed by the state auditor, correct? correct? Which is of either party, but right right now it's a Democrat. Right. Coincidentally, it's the only Democrat in statewide office, and it's pushed by Democrats and, and some liberal interests. Uh, it would also do things like it would limit lobbyist gifts. I think it's a $5 cap per lobbyist gift, which right now they're unlimited. It sets some revolving door procedures, how many, how long a legislature would have, a legislator would have to wait before they came back as a lobbyist. Um, it does a few things, like lowers the contribution limits slightly, opens up legislative records to the Sunshine Law, which right now legislators don't have to abide by the Sunshine Law. That's a law. pretty important point for yeah. all of us and for the public, too, that right. which legislative is weird that communications <laughs> would become public. Which is weird that it's the, la- it's the least talked about piece of it, but it could have the longest and biggest ramifications in just opening up the legislature. You're right. And it, it, this is, particular amendment has become very controversial in so much as the Republican establishment has vehemently come out against it, saying it's Democrats trying to do with the ballot measure what they couldn't do at the ballot box. You know, they've lost elections for the last 20 years. They're in the super minority. Now they're trying to play the change the way the game is played through the redistricting process to try to get back into power. Whereas Democrats say some of the reasons that they've lost over the last 20 years is because of how the districts are drawn. So that's that's the crux of this. And I just heard a Republican kind of lament to me that it's the if the legislature had just done things like ban lobbyist gifts, do a proper revolving door bill, open their records up, they would have taken the fuel out of this because they didn't think that a redistricting measure alone could pass. Right, and just so we're clear, this was an initiative. It wasn't right. put on by the legislature. That suggests some public support they had. Like I think they put in like three hundred and fifty thousand signatures to put this on the ballot simple majority passes it there is some democratic opposition to this particularly in st louis is that right right there's some african-american political organizations and politicians who think this is going to end up diluting their power that if you start drawing districts for competitiveness some of the least competitive districts on a partisan level are those minority represented districts in st louis kansas city so if you start to like the way to draw them to where they're competitive is to start to take in some of these other areas in the state to try to essentially dilute 
the either Republican or Democratic majorities in these districts to make them more competitive. If that's the case, you could see these African-American districts flip to Republicans and, and see uh, the as they're sort of growing in power in the legislature now, the, the Black Caucus sort of lose some of its members. Yeah, but for all of that, though, Leah, I don't get the sense when you put something on the ballot known as clean Missouri or anything that looks like ethics reform, that's a pretty popular deal. I'm not sure people have really, maybe you have a sense of it, but I don't think people are really diving into the specifics of how districts are going to be drawn. They just want to clean up Missouri. You know, I think the clean Missouri branding is really interesting because it almost makes it sound like it's a it's a carbon emissions initiative or something <laughs> along those lines. And yeah, a lot of people on social media are kind of like, I don't know what clean Missouri is, but we do know what redistricting is. So right. their branding is definitely something that's confusing. Well, the Republicans would say it's a Trojan horse that they're taking all these incredibly, if you just put a lobbyist gift ban on the ballot, 90% of people would vote for it. If you did the revolving door, overwhelming majorities redistricting maybe not so much but it's packaged with all these things that people are have a, a groundswell of popular support and the republicans would say that was the intent like mm-hmm. cloak it in these popular things and then get it across the finish line right although the other argument which i can make because i'm on the editorial board is basically the republicans saying don't pass this and let democrats gerrymander let us keep our gerrymander right, right? <laughs> i mean it is it is sort of I mean, the people think redistricting is so boring. It's really all of it, isn't it, Jason? Yeah, I mean, it's and it's interesting because the system was never really designed to have partisan fairness. It was designed to have compact, contiguous districts of people who lived near each other sending a representative. We've just all sort of segregated ourselves either politically, you know, if you're a liberal and you're going to move to Kansas City, St. Louis, or Columbia. If you're a conservative, you're going to live in Cape Girardeau, Springfield, and Rolla. And so to inject a partisan test into the map will absolutely change the makeup of the legislature in ways that we don't even know how it'll play out over the next decade or so. And just to wrap up the discussion, it's extraordinarily important now because redistricting comes up in 2022 after the 2020 census. In 2018, it's meaningless. Nobody, they're not drawing districts now, right? Right, right. yeah. Now, this is the next big fight. And that's also why the Democrats are desperate to sort of claw their way back out of the super minority because they tend to always lose in years that end in zero in Missouri and then just give up the redistricting process to the other party. All right. Let's move on to Amendments 2, 3, and Proposition C. We're going to take them all at once <laughs> because they're all related to marijuana. Right. And uh, the use of marijuana uh, uh, in uh, for medical reasons. It's not for personal consumption, although there's some dispute over that. But basically, mer- medical marijuana, two constitutional amendments, one statutory change. Um, I'm going to try and do this from memory, but Amendment 2 is kind of the more mainstream one if of, of the three proposals, 4% tax, general fund, basically some veteran stuff. Um, and uh, the other one is uh, Amendment 3 is the Brad Bradshaw, 15% tax. Proposition 3 is a lower tax, but it's also a statutory change. Right. Where do we think that campaign is? Because it does have to be sort of vote yes, no, no, rather than what one assumes everybody's going to do, which is vote yes, 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 or no, no, no. Right. No, I think that's the thing. Is it's I haven't seen a big effort that's distinguished one from the other. I mean, they're sort of sniping at each other and making the arguments for their individual proposal. But if you're just an average voter that's just sort of tuning in at the last minute, medical marijuana, there's three questions, I'll just vote yes. And then we enter this strange legal 
um, maze of at what point does one supersede the other? Can they coexist? Are there statutory and constitutional changes that don't necessarily overlap? And so, I mean, if one gets more votes than the other, the parts that are overlapping, it will it will supersede. But at the end of the day, I've, I've heard legal arguments say there are pieces of each of these that can exist even if all three pass. And because two of so them are constitutional, it's going to be a nightmare amendment. if they all pass. Right, because right? as a constitutional amendment, the legislature can't show back up in January and, and say, "All right, it. we're going to fix this." Which is one of the main arguments against uh, for supporters of this against Proposition C, because the legislature could go in and change everything right. about Proposition Three, uh, three if, or C, if it's the only one that passes. Right. Yeah, and which they've done repeatedly over yeah. the years, come back and reverse the vote of the people. Yeah, so. yeah. What do you do? You get a sense of this, Leo? Mar- marijuana is popping up in every state in America. And there's an argument this is a gateway measure, you know, and soon we'll all be smoking pot in, in, at break. You know? So we, we had a previous episode where we talked about the Missouri Influencer Series, and the story on the marijuana issues was the most read story of the entire Influencer Series, just without competition. People are definitely interested in this. They had a lot of questions and I have no doubt in my mind that they're going to be very confused when they go to the polls to vote. Yeah. Two, am I right that amendment two is the, the most mainstream right. of the, no, yeah, of the in terms of endorsements, campaign, right. understanding the Bradshaw amendment, the criticism of that Jason has been that it's all about Brad Bradshaw and right. wanting to use the money for his own uh, research purposes. Right. And then, Prop C, the complaint is that it can be changed by the legislature. Is that a fair summary? No, I think that's yeah, fair. I mean, yeah. I, with Bradshaw, I've heard the phrase marijuana czar yeah, thrown right, around. Right, so, right, right. I mean, a guy did single-handedly kind of put this on the ballot, is funding it, and is going to be in charge. It's it's one of the more direct uh, attempts to kind of buy your way into a piece of right. uh, political we should real estate. Be, the amendment, too, does allow you to grow a little bit of marijuana in <laughs> your own house. And some people have sort of said, no, that's that's really a problematic because that does lead to recreational use. Yeah. No, I think, that, as Leah said, I don't know what the voters are going to do. I think one or all of them is going to pass pretty easily. There's not really a, a concerted no campaign. Right. And so, yeah, we'll just see. I mean, eventually it's going to end up in the courts and they're going to decide what the law is. So. All right, let's move on to Amendment 4, which is a bingo-related thing, right? And, right. And I, I, in my little thing this morning, I said, nobody cares about bingo. <laughs> on to the next. Is there anything we need to worry about here? No, I presume that'll pass. I mean, I think it's just an archaic old law that right, needs to be changed so that people can volunteer to do bingo and not have to, like, wait a certain... Right. It's it's. There are tougher regulations, it appears, on bingo than on people who work in gaming. And so it just seemed like if you can work at a casino, you should you be, able be able to call to bingo. Bingo yeah. parlor. Okay, well, our background on that will not be deep. Let's move <laughs> on to, to the propositions. Prop B is the minimum wage increase. Right. I would have thought this would be the most visible of all the campaigns this year. You hardly hear a peep about it. Yeah, and people thought this was going to be... That this was the type of thing, because this was McCaskill the first time she ran, there was a minimum wage hike, and it was credited with kind of helping her campaign. You know, people thought, this is how you're going to turn out the urban vote. This is going to get St. Louis, Kansas City fired up. But you're right, I haven't seen, I mean, they spent a lot of money getting it across the finish line, and labor seems to be supportive of it. So if you're hoping to energize the labor community, maybe that's how 
you do it, but I haven't seen a ton of movement. I haven't seen a ton of organization. Right. If it's happening, it's sort of happening below the radar. In, in part because the increase on Prop B isn't doesn't appear to be as it's not fifteen dollars an hour, and it's certainly not immediate. It's like eighty five cents a year, I mm-hmm. think, right for several years until it gets to twelve bucks an hour in twenty twenty three, which is five years from now. So it doesn't seem as if industry really is fighting it that hard or business groups or the chamber. I mean, you hear a little rattle, but it just seems like the, and maybe right to work played into this too, because there's a sense that Mm -hmm. people voted against right to work and they might support a minimum wage increase. Yeah, no, I think that the the people who would normally oppose this just sort of of saw the writing on the wall that this is kind of cruise to election, why throw a ton of money at it and try to fight it and then lose, you know, 60-40. So yeah, I haven't heard much. Like I said, you would have thought that this would have been how you know, when we talk about the McCaskill campaign, this is how they're going to turn out some right. of their base. Well, but, given and given the the fight over minimum wage increases in Kansas City and St. Louis at the legislative level, you would have thought there would be more rural interest in saying, "No, we can't mm-hmm. do this," but you don't see that. And uh, we've talked about Prop C, which is the marijuana initiative, and then Prop D is the road tax. The, right. Although I I talked about this the other day on Channel Four, and somebody called me just irate that I didn't mention some of the money. A lot of the money is going to the Highway Patrol. But so talk us through that. It's two and a half cents for four years, 10 cent a gallon, basically, gas tax increase. Yeah, and this is one that, you know, Governor Parson did not do a whole lot of campaigning on the issue of right to work. He's a supporter of right to work, but he didn't put a lot of his political capital into it. He is full-throated in absolute support of this tax increase. He's been campaigning around the state. There's no organized opposition to this either. There's some people who have voiced some concerns that it's a big tax increase. But this is also sort of the last hurrah. Like if this fails, if the voters reject this tax increase, I don't think the legislature is going to have the stomach for any tax increase. And as we've learned over the last you know, 10 years, the road funding is just is, is woeful. Right. And They've tried a sales tax. That didn't go. Right. They've tried gas taxes. They haven't gone. You're out of answers. Yeah. This is the last ways. one. If this doesn't pass, I'm not sure what they'll do other than trying to redirect funds from other programs because – at some point, they have to do something with I-70. At some point, they're going to have to deal with some of these bridges. They can't just keep patching and, and throwing Band-Aids yeah. on it. And so, yeah, I don't know what happened. If it loses, I think you start with a pretty big hole on any tax increase. And, you know, I heard somebody say it's going to start with 40% who's just going to vote no because it's a tax increase. And so you're talking about you need to now win five of the next six voters in order to pass it. I think it's an uphill fight. I'm not saying it's doomed because it is getting a lot of institutional support across the political spectrum, but it's Missouri. It's a tax increase. Right. We've seen this movie before, Leah, and it's plus there is some Republican opposition as a tax, you know, just a tax increase. And you don't get the sense the public is in in a mood in the mood to, to pay more to jack taxes. up well particularly on a gallon of gas yeah. i mean you know that one thing you can control really is your level of taxation there and the idea of raising gas taxes no matter how many times i mean i stood out at bridges when the sales tax was on the and steve miller who was the head of the modot at the time we've got to fix this bridge and jay nixon and it still went nowhere do you get any sense it's more popular now than it has been in the past i haven't read any comments that are extremely for or against honestly but what I have seen are people who don't understand why part of the money goes to the highway patrol and immediately you think to yourself well when you drive on highways you need somebody to patrol the highway so it kind of makes sense but 
I think that there are people who might not vote for it as a result of seeing that money right. goes toward highway enforcement and not necessarily the just highways. fixing And that's it. a great point, by the way, and there is some confusion on that, isn't there, Jason, a little bit? Yeah. Why, why was the highway patrol dumped into this thing? Well, they've been trying to find a way to free up general revenue to put other roads. Yeah, and this is this is one of the avenues that you can do is to try to get them into the transportation fund. Um, and you're right. I mean, they're an integral part of like making sure that the roadway is safe and right. that tra- like if you're talking about traffic flow, having highway patrol out there is key. Um, I just think there's just a gut instinct in Missouri to vote no on tax increases Period. by a large chunk of people. And I don't know. It's just a tough hill to climb. And it's almost and I've heard this said before, too. It's almost that we're going to need a tragedy. There's going to have to be a bridge collapse like there was in Minnesota years ago or or something's going to have to happen where people are just so outraged that they're willing to swallow you know, a, right. a big tax increase. Although Missouri has rejected tobacco taxes, too. And if you yeah. want to talk tragedy, I mean, you know, people right. die from tobacco every day. So, all right. Well, that it, have I missed anything on the – it's a long – I think that's all the big state <laughs> issues. There's, yeah. there's some <laughs> county stuff, and maybe we'll deal with that at another time. Okay, so we've got about five minutes left. Uh, McCaskill, Holly. Uh, has it really played out the way you thought? I think – I said today, I think – Claire McCaskill has run a good campaign. She raised a lot of money. She's, uh, you know, the the, the discussion has centered around health care. A Democrat would want that. Hawley has seemed lackluster at times, particularly early in the race. And yet, as we sit here, she's probably not the favorite. No, I think he's definitely got the momentum. I just think Kavanaugh, the, that hearing, flipped things on its head. And it sort of reminded people what team they were on, right? And he's run a campaign that was dedicated to nationalizing the race and making it a Republican the race. Yeah, it's Republican versus Democrat. Whose team are you on? And if you were a Republican and you thought that Kavanaugh was getting a raw deal, or you just thought the Democrats were that angry mob that they were trying to be portray them as, you got a lot more energized. And that's sort of the point where I started to feel the, the momentum of the race shifting in uh, Josh Hawley's favor, and I think it's it's carried over. In some states, that, that energy is dissipated, but in Missouri, I just think, and you can tell by the fact that yesterday he's in St. Louis with Lindsey Graham, and that's all they wanted to talk about was right. send a message, get rid of Claire, tell him that what happened to Brett Kavanaugh was wrong. Although, to be clear, they're bringing in Mike Pence this week. Yeah. The president is going to, I think, Chillicothe, or Cape Girardeau. Mm-hmm. And uh, Columbia. Uh, Columbia. Mm-hmm. That suggests it's still pretty close. It's certainly not a blowout either way. No, I, I, it could still go either way. And I think, you know, Claire McCaskill is a smart politician. And I think she's still kind of banking on this idea that her base will vote for her. And she's got to appeal to those white working class Trump voters that were have voted for her in the past who maybe opposed right to work, who are upset with Republicans. We'll see if that's a winning strategy, because if you look at other states where the, the game plan is, energize the base, attack Trump, get your people to the polls. It's a midterm. Typically, you think of those as base elections. That's not been her strategy. Not at all. And she's not the most favorite candidate of the people in her political base, the progressives, African-American community. So will they turn out for her? And if they do, can she also get some of those swing voters? That'll be the decision point in this race. I also thought that the most devastating line, Leah, that I saw in the debates between the two uh, candidates was Holly's repeated reference to her long career. You know, you've had a 36-year career. And right. you, and there is sort of a, as there is in most midterms, a throw-the-bums-out mentality for well-known, familiar faces. He's kind of a new face, just two years on the political scene. That seems to be helping him out a little bit, too. 
Yeah, I guess so. I, you know, honestly, when it comes to this race, you mentioned before, Jason, talking about how Kavanaugh, that whole ordeal kind of strengthened the Republican base. We've had two tragic instances. Well, one tragic instance and then a really large-scale national thing that happened with all the little bombs that got sent to different um, candidates and news organizations and then the shooting at the synagogue. I kind of wonder if either of those instances will bring people to the polls as well because these are things that are getting tied to political issues. And I wonder if that will have any impact at all on voters. That's a great question. And let me just piggyback on it because we did see uh, in Gallup today, Trump's approval dropped four points. The new polling in some House races suggest, you know, plus 5D or now plus 8, plus 9. So there may be a little bit of a last minute Democratic shift based on what happened in Pittsburgh, based on the letter bombs, based on Trump's own rhetoric. Do we feel that at all in Missouri? That's really what McCaskill has to depend on. Well, I mean, let me answer your question with a question. Do you think that Senator McCaskill can capitalize on that energy if she's on Fox News yesterday talking about crazy Democrats or talking about how Elizabeth Warren is kind of a reactionary? Like, she's not talking to her base. So... She's either just confident that they'll hold their nose and vote for her, or she's making a calculation that she can, like, the the undecided, the people who are going to break late for her are the people in Clay County or Jefferson County in St. Louis. So I don't know if that dynamic can favor her, because part of that dynamic is going to have to be pointing at the president and saying what he says is inappropriate. If she's on, I mean, she was on her interview with Fox News yesterday, she said flatly, I support the the president doing whatever he has to do to deal with this caravan of refugees. I don't think there's a progressive or liberal candidate in the country who wants to have that. Who that, that's almost Republican talking point right. to deploy the military to take on this group of refugees. So right. and, can and, she capitalize? I, I just I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. I, in the debate, I thought it was very telling that the caravan came up and. She was all about, I support the president and whatever he needs to secure the border, which, again, is part of this whole strategy of really, let's just be clear, turning your back on urban areas in a way and hoping that you can make that up with votes in central Missouri and south southwest, southeast Missouri. And that is just a huge gamble for someone who's been around so long, you know, as long as Claire McCaskill, because I think a lot of attitudes toward her are baked in the cake in some parts of the state. I mean, it's not like she's a new, you know, new decision-making point for them. So we'll see what happens. Um, Anything in the race surprised you at all? no, I mean, again, I think it's the Republicans. If you look at, I just read a good story about uh, the Tennessee Senate race by Jonathan Martin at the New York Times. Look at the pictures. It looks like a Josh Hawley rally. It's the same signage. It's the same attitude. I think they have successfully nationalized the race. And if if we're spending the next week talking about, as Trump would say, Caravan and Kavanaugh, then I think Josh Hawley's clearly right. going to win. And if, if somehow Senator McCaskill can turn this into a debate on pre-existing conditions and the minimum wage and labor right. rights. And violence. And, 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 and violence. you know, right. Pittsburgh, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Final question, and Leah, <laughs> weigh on, on this too. Because another thing I talked about at this little group I spoke to today is how Senate races particularly seem to be almost automatically national now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't really – it isn't – you know, people don't say, I like Josh Hawley – necessarily because he's Josh Hawley, but because we need Republicans and we want Republicans to control the Senate and vice versa with Claire. Um, 
you know, you're almost to a point, and we saw this in 2014 in Kansas with Greg Orman. The big issue there was, are you going to caucus with the Democrats, yeah. not what do you think about the price of wheat or the Affordable Care Act or anything? We're almost to a point where they're all nationalized races. And by the way, just let me throw this in, total spending on that race will easily exceed $100 million bucks. I mean, the outside stuff is already close to $60 million plus what they're going to spend on their own. Right. I mean, so is that, do you get a sense of that, that we don't really choose senators anymore based on their individual qualities? I mean, I guess so. Feel free to disagree. At, if you don't. At, at this point, I mean, after President Trump took office, it did seem like the parties banded to their party and they started voting along party lines even more than maybe they had before. And oh my gosh, the early returns on people voting early in Kansas were reaching really high numbers for the first time. So I guess maybe the fact that things are seeming more national, even at the Senate level, right. is as directly as a result of yeah. who was elected president that, That's last. another way of saying that we're going to spend $100 million in Missouri on this race, and yet decisions were probably locked in some time ago. There's yeah. just not that much movement, particularly among people who are going to cast ballots. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I think we've just become such so polarized and identified with our team that it's, yeah, short of a big scandal or a big... Just an unelectable person like Roy Moore in Alabama. Or it's going to be hard to peel people. Or a Todd Aiken. It's yeah. going to be hard to peel people away from their team. All right, great. Well, it's hard to peel people away from the background, as we know. And so we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Kansas, all things Kansas. Thanks for staying with us. And Jason, thanks so much for dropping in. Yeah, thanks for having me. We'll be back after this. Hey there, it's Leah. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at the Kansas City Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a deep background listener. Subscribing at that URL will get you three months of unlimited digital access for $1.99 total. You get access to KansasCity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, mobile apps, and more for three whole months. And it only costs you $1.99. It's a pretty sweet deal. Plus, you'll be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So grab your computer or mobile device and go to KansasCity.com background. And hey, thanks for listening. Okay, we're back now with our good buddy uh, Hunter Woodall with the Star. Hunter, thanks for being with us to talk about all things Kansas. And Leah is still standing by as co-host of Deep Background. <laughs> well, we've got really three races to think about in Kansas, uh, Hunter. Let's take them in reverse order of interest or of closeness or whatever and start with the Kansas 2nd District, mm -hmm. which is uh, Paul Davis, the Democrat, against Steve Watkins, the Republican. Uh, there, I'm fascinated by this race because people misunderstand the second district. They think it's Topeka, <laughs> and in fact, it's Topeka and about a third of Kansas yeah. from Oklahoma north to Nebraska, and that has kept Watkins alive a little bit. Well, and you make a great point, Dave. You look at that district; it's huge. I mean, you have two kind of liberal bastions in Topeka and Lawrence, but then you have all these other parts of the state that you know are they're conservative. They are you know very kind of Kobach 
you know, Republicans. And it, as I mean, you get closer to Oklahoma, that gets even more pronounced. Mm-hmm. You're in the Ozark Belt. Then I mean, it's a pretty conservative part of the state. No, it, de- it definitely is. And so Watkins remains competitive. In fact, I saw a poll today that had him up seven points. Well, you know, and at the end of the day, uh, Brian Lowry, you know, the, our Washington correspondent and I were talking, it kind of seems like, you know, the Dems to win control of the U.S. House need to win the third with Yoder and Sharice. But if they, if if David, if Paul Davis beats Steve Watkins, they're almost assured to have won the House because if they're winning seats like that, they're, you can see them really easily taking the House majority. Right now, let's be clear: Steve Watkins is not the perfect candidate. <laughs> I mean, he's had all he had problems in the primary. We've done some reporting that suggests that his business background isn't all that he suggested it is. There was some reporting recently about allegations involving his marriage, which we didn't have, but some other papers have reported on. He, he His dad is heavily involved right. in financing his campaign. I mean, there are lots of places where if you're looking for a way to attack Steve Watkins, the, there's a place to start. And it's been fascinating. He has continued to, we you know, we, we reported a story, you know, me, Lindsay Wise, and, and Kevin Hall, are, uh, one of our colleagues in D.C., that Watkins was, you know, very much embellishing, owning or, you know, starting a business. Even after clearly debunking that claim of his, he has continued to use it in debates. He has continued to say that he, you know, did this, which is incredible. Like, we have the proof that he's, it's not correct what he's saying. It's kind of the Donald Trump approach. Exactly. (laughs) And and what was fascinating to me, too, is, you know, his his father, as you noted, has poured hundreds of thousands into, into a super PAC to help Steve get elected. And he, I watched him at the first debate, and one of his closing lines was, oh, I want to help get big money out of politics, essentially. And in my story, I mean, I did note, it's like he, you know, he'll win based on the strength of Trump and his father investing hundreds of thousands into getting him elected. Right, if he does. Now, Paul Davis is a pretty well-known figure, and he ran for governor in 2014 against Sam Brownback. He was the Kansas legislature. Uh, in the Kansas legislature, and then I, mu- but I must say, he, he came into the editorial board a couple of weeks ago, and he seemed less than uh, energized about this race. What do you do? You hear anything online? Do you see anything in terms of whether people are even engaging in the second district? This is going to seem a little bit repetitive of what we were just talking about with Jason in the first half of the segment, but um, this is again one of those situations where, when I read the comments online having to do with this race, people are just going to vote with their party. In Kansas, in just Kansas. Republican, and, and that's again why, why because the, I, don't, I haven't seen any recent numbers, but one assumes registrations in Kansas are plus R mm-hmm. in the second district, again, given its configuration. The Paul did win uh, the second district when he ran for governor in 14, you know, and I went down to Independence, uh, Kansas, not Missouri, mm-hmm. Independence, Kansas, and there, there are a good deal of those kind of blue dog, moderate Democrats out there that I think if Paul does get them, you know, he will not win this race by, you know, a large margin, but you can definitely, you could see him eking out a win just as well as Watkins based off this kind of, you know, nascent blue moderate, you know, right. moderates in the area. Right. And he's had his own, the Davis has uh, his own, I don't want to say scandal, but wrinkle involving a strip club, which came up during the 2014 race. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Republicans have used it again. I don't think that's moving many votes either. I do get the sense that Lee is exactly right that this is a straight party play for both for both of the candidates. Well, perhaps. and to the, to the strip club uh, 
criticism of Davis, you know, he got caught, you know, I believe, I think the report was, you know, in a raid of a strip club. Um, he hadn't done anything wrong. He, w- he was just there. And I, Republicans have been using that ad against him. And it's been interesting because these are the same folks that kind of brushed off, you know, allegations about Trump in, in 16. So it is, it is interesting to see yeah. this resurface. All right, let's move on to the next congressional race of interest. The third district, Sharice Davids, the Democrat, never held office before. Uh, now considered by most outsiders the favorite in her race against Kevin Yoder, the four-term incumbent. I, I can't believe a week out I'm saying those words <laughs> because I don't think a year ago, six months ago, any of us would have thought that the Democrat would be a, a solid favorite in the 3rd District, and yet every poll, every outside analyst suggests that it's hers to lose. Is the, What's your own view of the race? So it was really interesting. I went out, uh, you know, early voting. I started in Johnson County and Wyandotte County, you know, that mostly make up all the third. Kansas, yeah, all of yeah. Kansas, yeah. And I was talking to voters, and very quickly I found, you know, a handful of registered Republicans who have voted for Yoder and voted for, you know, mm-hmm. him in the past saying, I am not voting for him this time. I voted for him in 16. I am voting for David's. I'm voting straight Democrat. Why? You know, they, there's nothing so much about Yoder that they were upset about other than seeing him as almost a yes man to Trump. Um, you Trump know, is really on the ballot. Right. This is, this is, you know, it's very More much... in the second, right? Right. You know, like, what, like Paul Davis has really gone out of his way to not, you know, criticize Trump's character. He's criticized him on the tariffs, you know, which is all right, right. big for the farmers in that area. But, you know, every, there's that association of Yoder isn't standing up to Trump. So I'm, I'm voting Democrat. I'm so upset with Trump, I'm going to vote Democrat, which, you know, we thought that might happen in in a 16 and it didn't with Jay Seide. But, I mean, the idea that this many people are, you know, at least anecdotally switching uh, was noteworthy to me. Yeah, remember, uh, Hillary Clinton actually won the 3rd District in 2016, but but just marginally so. I think, yeah, it was by a point a, or a two. Point, uh, about a point. Uh, but, and... and uh, Trump won Johnson County. Right. And uh, Jay Seide, who was Yoder's challenger, the Democratic challenger, lost, lost by, by like 11, 10 yeah. or 11 points. Yeah. Yeah. So that would suggest about a 10 point slump. But it's exactly the opposite, Lee, of what you just uh, uh, showed, I think, rightly in the second district, which is a, a straight party thing. It almost seems anti party in the third district in Johnson County. What, what, do you have a sense of that at all? Um, I mean, not really in terms of comments, because this is one of those situations. I think I've said this like five or six times probably this year. The the people who are the loudest on social media and comment sections are the people who aren't necessarily representative of the entire voter base. And they're just yelling the loudest and they are mad about Trump or they're mad about right. whatever. But you don't get the sense, I, I try to read the comments too and just my own email and the discussion. You don't get the sense, I don't get the sense that people are defending Yoder as Yoder, uh, Hunter, as much as they are defending the Republican Party and the need for the Republicans to control the House. But, but those who don't have that view are very angry at Trump, and that's really the sort of prototypical suburban district that Trump is having problems mm-hmm. with all across the country. Women voters, the gender gap is huge. Um, the education gap is huge. More well-educated voters so going away from Trump. All of that spells problems for Kevin Yoder. And I tried to write a column the other day that said it really isn't completely his fault. You know, when, when these trends are what they are, it's not clear what he might have done or might do in the last week to reverse them. Well, you know, it's it's been interesting. I found Republicans at the, you know at the polls, and I said, "Why are you voting for Kevin Yoder?" And they said, "Well, he's a Republican." 
you know, they're, they're, it doesn't, you know, for how much, and I mean. But in that district, that isn't enough to get you across the finish line. Right, and, you know, I, I do think it's, for Yoder, he has done, you know, he has done a lot. He does work hard in Congress. I think that's clear. But, you know, he's just having trouble, and you kind of see that from our story over the weekend that, I, you know, Brian Lowry and I wrote. He's had trouble, I think, pushing that to voters. Like, they, you know, if I ask them an accomplishment, yeah. they can't think yeah, of one. I think the bigger, I think that's right. But I think the bigger problem is, he, he, does he embrace Donald Trump or push him away? And that, you know, in a district like that, I think you have to choose one side or the other. And I think he's tried to, you know, Brian's story or your guy's story where he, apparently uh, Kevin Yoder is arguing that Sharice David's worked under the Trump administration at the Department of Transportation is just really a chuckle-inducing claim. So so what is he, but what is he saying by making that claim that Trump is a bad guy or a good guy? I mean, I don't, it seems like you have to pick one side or another in that district, and he's tried to straddle it the whole time. Maybe that's the biggest, one of the biggest problems he has over there. But Trump has supported Yoder. And for a lot of people in our comment sections, they see that as Yoder also supporting Trump. Correct. And what does Yoder do? And in fact, as we tape, one o'clock on Tuesday, one week before the election, the president just tweeted out maybe half an hour ago, another endorsement of Kevin Yoder, strong on Second Amendment, all kinds of stuff. Well, and, you know, with the Trump, uh, you know, endorsements, you see them coming out a mile a minute on Twitter, you know, before the election. (laughs) It's interesting that Trump seems to have been more loyal to Yoder than Yoder has been to Trump, which is not what you usually see. Usually, right. you know, Trump's really backing people who are almost undyingly loyal to him. Right. And maybe they see this as a race where they need to have the seat to control Congress. But the vice president is here this week, and I don't think Kevin is supposed to be on the stage with Chris Kobach, Josh Hawley, and others. The president is in Cape Girardeau, a little far away from here, so you wouldn't expect that. But he certainly wasn't in Topeka for the rally. So, so again, Kevin seems to be trying to you know, do a very difficult thing. Which is, and by the way, Democrats had this problem with Barack Obama big time, uh, particularly in his first term. You know, remember in 2010, Democrats were wiped out in the House for many of the reasons that Republicans are now in trouble with Donald Trump, and that is anger at Barack Obama. Midterms are all about the occupant of the White House and the controlling party, and that really seem, seems to get Kevin Yoder in the vice here. Now, does the debate make any difference, which we haven't seen yet, but will the debate make any difference? Will her reluctance to debate uh, uh, make any difference? Will his reluctance to debate, uh, at least under her terms, make any difference? Or is that already baked into the decision making? You know, there's so many people who've early voted. I know that was a big contention point of, okay, you know, this debate coming after early voting had started. Yoder obviously has that experience. And, you know, we know he's he's at least a polished debater, if not someone who's done that, you know, very much in the, in the last, you know, few terms. David's David has been so reluctant to kind of get into that ring with him. I, you know, I don't know if this is a sway many voters, but it's clear this had to happen. You know, almost both of them felt like they needed to do something at least. Right, right. I, I would argue that it won't have any make any difference with early voters or maybe committed voters, but there may be some undecided people in in Johnson and Wyandotte counties who want to watch this or get the read the stories about right. it, see the TV coverage. And may be able to make a difference one way or the other. And in a one or two point race, yeah, it could make a difference. In a you know eight or nine point race, it's not going to make much difference at all. That may be baked into the cake. We'll see. Um, let's move on. We've just got a few minutes left to the biggest race of all, which is the race for governor. Chris Kobach, Laura Kelly, the Democrat, and uh, Greg Orman, the Independent. 
Uh, where do we think that race sits today? So I've been surprised. The Dems seem to be feeling awfully good right now, which I, I don't think I expected that given you know how much hand-wringing there was about Greg Orman staying in the race and possibly pulling votes away from from Kelly, but, you know, Kobach's out on this kind of remain red tour. Um, I saw a picture, you know, of him in Johnson County yesterday. I didn't see, you know, never judge by Twitter photographs, but <laughs> it didn't seem like he was having huge crowds. Now, maybe that was the point of it, but the pictures I looked at, maybe 15, 20 people, it, it, you know, she, he's not doing rallies with a thousand supporters. Right. At this point. I mean, and we saw campaign finance reports come out, you know, in the last 24 hours and he's behind Kelly and he's only and even then he's only behind Kelly by as little as he is because um, Wink Hartman is lieutenant governor candidate has put in a lot of his own money into the race, which I saw Patrick Miller, you know, political scientist from University of Kansas saying he can't remember the last time an LG candidate put in this much money for some, you know, for his running mate. So it's, right. it's been it's been rather interesting. There's, I, I think there's still enthusiasm behind Chris, but there's not the same kind of groundswell of either supporters on the ground or money coming in for him. Right, right. On the other hand, Leah, every poll I've seen, it's a one-point race back and forth, certainly margin of error. We just don't know who's going to win. But it's But you talk to most Democrats, and they do sort of seem a little bit resigned. Oh, Chris is going to, in fact, I think you guys may have had a, Quote, or one of the stories I read re- recently where Democrats are going, oh, well, Kansas always re- elects Republicans. We all know they're going to go for <laughs> Kobach. Um, what do you think the temperature of the public, the voting public, is in this race? It's, you know, it's hard to tell. I think that because Kobach has aligned himself so much with Donald Trump, and he's taken a lot of the things that he's saying and doing right out of the Trump playbook as far as campaigning is concerned, I kind of wonder if. Maybe people, even if they're like hopeful, let's say for Kelly, that they could see what happened with the presidential race also happening with the Kansas governor right. race. Right. And, and, and in addition to that, Johnson County casts about one out of every four votes in the state. I mean, it's about 25 percent. If we're going to argue that Trump is unpopular enough in Johnson County to elect Sharice Davids, that's a problem for Chris Kobach, isn't it? I mean... You know, the, 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 the distance between uh, Kobach and Jeff Collier in the primary was a couple hundred votes. He has to do very well in Johnson County to have any chance, one assumes, and the Trump identification is a challenge for him, isn't it? Or is it? I, I think it, he will be on the stage with Mike Pence this week. He was on the stage mm-hmm. in Topeka with President uh, Trump. He has wholeheartedly endorsed him you know, applied for a job with the Trump administration. I mean, there's no question here about which side Chris Kobach is on. Well, and you make a good point about Johnson County's importance because I've been trying to get uh, House Speaker Ron Reichman on the phone just to ask him, what do you think a Kobach governorship would look like? I haven't been able to. It doesn't seem like he really wants to talk about that. I've been trying for two weeks now. And I keep thinking, if you have folks like Reichman, who's a very established Olathe conservative, who aren't, you know, glowingly talking about what Kobach can do, what's that enthusiasm like? Well, right. And Bill Graves has endorsed uh, Laura Kelly. And Nancy Kassebaum. And Mike Hayden. And Mike Hayden has endorsed. I mean, the sort of mainstream Republicans have endorsed the Democrat. And I get all the time, oh, they're just rhinos, they're Republicans. And, you know, obviously they're not, they don't share views with some of the more conservative members of the Republican uh, majority in Kansas. But they represent Johnson County Republicanism, as I've always understood it, which is sort of bank, commerce, you know, Chamber of Commerce, 
uh, you know, pay your bills, Jan Myers, Nancy Kassebaum, Republicanism, and certainly not Chris Kobach Republicanism. And those That's the sense I have. And those moderate Republican, you know, officials who, you know, uh, you know, they, some of them haven't come out and, you know, gone against Kobach. I believe only three have in, uh, three or four have in Johnson County. But you don't see many of these mods in the area being like, you know what, we need to vote for Kobach. He's not Correct. getting, they're, they're not really standing up saying Chris is our guy. They're just staying out of it. Right. Jeff Collier was apparently did some appearances with Kobach yesterday, but you didn't see anything about it. There wasn't, I mean. And Yoder was there too, actually, which I was oh, surprised by. I did not by. know that. He, yeah, the photos, you know, again, don't judge a photo, I guess, but Yoder <laughs> did not look exactly thrilled to be there. Yeah, yeah. So the geometry of this race in our area seems profoundly interesting to me, which is, and I think it's the same question, Hunter and Leah, that we had the day after the primary, which is where do the moderate Republicans and independents in this part of the state go? And if they break for uh, Laura Kelly, then Kobach is in big trouble. If not, then he's got a shot. But even if they just stay home, I mean, that, that's Or stay too. home. Now, and that brings up Greg Orman. And um, I don't, we haven't seen him on TV much. Uh, you know, he's done a few campaign appearances, but it doesn't seem, you know, I covered his campaign in 2014 against Pat Roberts, and there was a huge event out in Olathe a couple days before that election, and, and buses were coming in, and Chuck Todd, and what's <laughs> going on in Kansas was all happening. Um, you don't really sense that kind of uh, uh, enthusiasm this time. Uh, am I missing something, or is... Uh, We've talked about this before, Dave. You know, it's... It's hard to run without without a party apparatus, you know. If you, I mean, I think you, we talked, you know, earlier right. in the cycle. It's like you, you know, if you want to go talk to the local, you know, local, club. you know, local, you know, club or something like that. It's hard. You don't have you don't have that messaging. You don't have those, those yeah, people on the ground. You can't call up the the chairman of the you know Geary County Republican Party and say, hey, I'm coming out. I need a I need a luncheon at the Sizzlin Sirloin. You exactly. just can't. It just doesn't happen. Um, but it is interesting. No commercials. No you know. No real. I think this is true. We didn't talk about Craig O'Deer in the Missouri segment, but he's the independent in Missouri. You don't see a lot about him either. The whole idea of a third way seems to have diminished in this race, which makes it more of a Kobach-Kelly uh, play. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we'll get a purer, it seems to me, result as Orman continues to shrink. I saw some polls today at 8, maybe 7%. Well, and that's what I find so fascinating is, you know, Orman came into this race to win. If he does if he does less than 10%, what was what did, does he think he's achieved by doing this? Because he, he did work obviously much worse than he did against Pat Roberts. Right, right. Do you think, I'll let, uh, we'll wrap up with this, do you think either candidate could have made better use of the Orman candidacy? I mean, I don't see either of them sort of, you know, relying on Orman or talking about Orman or being hypercritical, although Laura Kelly, when she came to the editorial board, was uh, her best moment was when she said, we can't afford another experiment, and Greg Orman would be an experiment, which is interesting. Yeah, that's tying that into the Brownback rhetoric right, is interesting. Right, 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 um, right. You know, I think Kobach's actually used Orman in a, in a rather fascinating way. A, a political scientist pointed this out to me again. I think this was Patrick Miller from the University of Kansas. Kobach would probably, if it was just him and Kelly, he would probably have to moderate right now because he needs 50% or more. Because he probably just needs in the 40s, he can just be hardline conservative Chris Kobach. And because, you know, because there's that third option, he doesn't have to moderate himself. I get that, although there is a risk there. You go hardline Chris Kobach and suddenly you're scaring away moderates who will either go to Orman or cross all the way over to Laura Kelly. I, I, you know, I don't think her campaign has been dynamic particularly or, or you know, 
charisma is not really her middle name, uh, but it may be that in this environment, the lack of charisma is actually a selling point. So let's, uh, uh, Leah, you go first, and do we like anyone in that race? What, what, you know, who do we, not who you want to vote for, but who do you think uh, is the favorite? Well, you know, so I've been noticing something kind of interesting in the past week, couple weeks. Um, nationally, Kansas governor race has had a lot of coverage, too. And the, um, I'll say the focus, at least from what I've been listening to, was on voter su- suppression, right, very right. specifically. The, the Dodge City story. Yes. Yeah. And um, I kind of wonder if there are people who maybe are getting more interested in this race as a result of that issue and because they're seeing coverage and they're hearing their friends talk about it in other states. So maybe there's a little bit of influence coming from that and maybe as a result, the Democratic candidate will have a little bit more of an right. edge. We'll see. You know, again, Hunter makes a great point. Early voting is very popular in Kansas, and a lot of the votes have already been cast. And so, again, it's hard to see how the dynamics of the race, whatever they are, and we're guessing, uh, changing that much between now and and Election Day. We'll see what happens. Well, and, you know, Brian Caskey, with the Kansas Secretary of State's office, lead election official, he's been updating us on numbers. Dem turnout numbers have actually been very strong so far, which, you know, know, if you're, you know, Dems usually do better in early voting. So I think you have to be, you have to be feeling not confident, but at least, you know, pretty good. You're feeling a little bit of sunshine on the Dem side looking at those early voting numbers. All right, great. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Hunter, for coming in to talk to us on Deep Background. I'm, um, you know, the week out, we're all sort of, blurry-eyed trying to figure out what's going on and questions and answers and editorials. Uh, The results in Kansas will just be fascinating to watch on November 6th. Let's hope the Johnson County people can count the ballots on November (laughs) 6th and don't have to wait till November 7th. Hunter Woodall with The Star, thanks for coming and uh, to the podcast. And uh, Leah Becerra, as always, thanks for co-hosting. My name is Dave Helling with The Star's editorial board. Thanks. You've been on Deep Background. 